0: Live from the Padawanami Studios in Idaho Falls, Idaho, I'm your host, Jared Andrus, and welcome to History on the Dark Side. Hello and welcome to History on the Dark Side. I have a, another special guest today. Sitting to my right is Paige Waters. How are you, Paige?
1: Doing pretty well. How about yourself?
0: Doing well. And I got with Paige to actually kind of help out with uh, some of her kids in a cross-curriculum manner. She does a unit on the Holocaust and some of the literature of the Holocaust, and it turns out the Holocaust is part of history and something that I'm very interested in. Thus, we are here.
1: And it works out very well.
0: We'll see. It might work out (laughs) horribly, but we'll find out right about now. So, where does, do most of the kids that you talk with, have they... What do they know about the Holocaust coming in?
1: Ooh. Uh, I would say a lot of the kids know very little about the Holocaust. It, it's it's just so far removed. And the kids that do know about it are kids that just have grandparents that have been in the the, the situation during this World War II, right? Because right. it happened 1940-ish, mm-hmm. right in that area. Mm-hmm. So we still have grandparents Like, my grandparents were old enough to kind of remember some of that. I mean, it was after their time, just barely. But some kids still have grandparents or great-grandparents that were there during this that they've heard from. So last year, I remember I had one student that just knew so much about World War II history, Holocaust, Mm -hmm. things like that, just because his great-grandfather had told him so much and just had stacks and stacks of history books upon, you know, all sorts of literature just about the Holocaust. But realistically... When we talk about it in my class, it's, I want to say, for at least 70% of the kids, it's the first time they're hearing about it.
0: Okay. That's wild for me to think about. But I sort of, as a kid, accidentally came upon the Holocaust. I wasn't looking for it. It wasn't something that was really taught in school until several years after I happened upon it. So I guess that makes sense.
1: You're not that much older than me. Come on now. I'm an old man. Um... (laughs)
0: <laughs> At least I feel like it most days. Where do you begin when you're... What piece of literature is your first introduction for those kids who have nothing to go on?
1: Uh, honestly, if I, I I like to try and start with Anne Frank. Okay. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with Anne Frank in the literature that she has produced, which she wasn't... She wasn't writing the diary to actually have it produced, right. obviously. So it wasn't something she anticipated being published out to the world, of being taught in schools, as far as I understand. I mean, again, I don't really know her mindset or her motive, but as far as I understood, some of the things that she put in there were very personal. Yeah. So I can't imagine she wanted the whole thing out. It was just, you know, her diary to recount the times. And honestly, I think that, you know, her parents wanted to have her to have something to look back on through this time. I think her father, Uda, Otto, I think, Udo, yeah. yeah, Otto Frank, and then I can't remember her mom's name, unfortunately, right now. Wanted her to have something to look back on and remember this time. Right. Because obviously they anticipated making it through. So I usually start with the diary of Anne Frank because, one, most kids at this age tend to, uh, I guess, relate to her. And that's the, the main reason that we do teach Anne Frank. Right. Is because she is 13, 14 at the time. And kids want to be able to relate to the fact of, you know, teenage angst and, you know, the feelings of... You that, know, your parents... Those romantic
0: involvement with Peter and the... okay, that
1: was overdramatized in in the play. It's not that worked up in her actual diary, to be honest. I she it didn't seem as they like they created a friendship, right? And it was more plutonic than it was, you know, love, right? And I think that there was a little aspect of that, but nothing that really blossomed from that sure. because of the situation that they were in. But kids this age, I think they—I feel like they relate to the idea of writing the diary, trying to understand themselves, trying to understand the situation around them, and trying to know where they fit in. And so,
0: I wonder if it's easier for them to imagine, like just being isolated and hiding away, having just gone through some level of isolation with this COVID. That's an experience we never had growing up.
1: Right, and I think I think this year when I teach the Holocaust they'll make a better connection with Anne Frank due to the fact that they had to quarantine. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sorry, kids. <laughs> you didn't have to quarantine that long. Well, yeah, not like that. Anne Frank was in hiding for over two years. I mean, it was, you know, two years and a couple months, but still two years in an attic. Like, all, she outgrew all of her clothes that she brought with her and ended up having to wear her older sisters and try and make stuff work. But... Realistically, I think that the kids will definitely relate to that more just because yeah. they had to be in quarantine, more so than what we've had in the past. Because I remember learning about Anne Frank, and I thought, okay. And
0: unless you had chicken pox and your mom hid you away for two days, it's not really something that's in the collective American experience.
1: Exactly, and it's not super relatable. It's, it, I mean, we're trying to make it relatable in the sense of, well, Anne Frank is just trying, she's 13, she's trying to figure out where she fits in the world, but... They were in a serious war where they were tr- where people were actively trying to kill them and exterminate their race. And right. kids don't relate to and
0: that. They, their family did everything right. They did. You know, Otto sees the writing on the wall. He mm-hmm. moves his family out of Germany early, and he wanted of time. to, but he still gets out in plenty of time. Yeah. And it would seem, hey, if we make it to the Netherlands, it's one of the more Freer Amsterdam, it's a freer safer. city, safer, unencumbered. There's no real reason to conquer it. It's not the kind of thing that's been conquered historically. Yeah. But the Nazis are quite content to just occupy.
1: Yes. And, they are. and
0: there's the trouble.
1: Well, and they bribed a lot of places as well. Sure. I do recall. They they would <clears throat> make deals with other countries and their politicians of hey, we we want these people back. And I can't remember exactly how they put it, but it was very manipulative. And well, absolutely. very deceitful in the sense of we are working with a problem right now and we are trying to document people. And I think that's kind of the way they processed it. was. But I think some of it did come down to threats. Like some of the countries that didn't want to do it, it came down to threats of, hey, you either do this or we are taking over your territory. We are taking over your area. And I can't, I am geographically... <laughs> dysfunctional, so I can't state which exact places did that, but I do know that there were a lot of places, and I think maybe Italy might have been one of them, too. I thought Italy was close, but I might be wrong. I'm probably wrong. But they did threaten to just take over places, and so a lot of smaller areas just said, alright, fine, here, take our people, but, you know, for the people that were willing, or for the countries that were willing to just hand them over, they gladly took the bribe and said, yeah, sure, we'll take your money, so that you can have our Jews." There's
0: some unique... Sorry. There's some unique cases um, later in the war in places like Hungary where they actually monetized having those Jews turned over to them. And it became this entire money making event for both mm-hmm.
1: the Germans
0: and these other countries that they wanted the Nazis from. It's a very sick and twisted way that this kind of came about. I want to do something that's very unradio friendly here. So I'm holding up the classic picture of Anne Frank. This is the one that was on the book I read when I was younger than the kids we teach. But I was probably in sixth grade or so, as I recall.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Read the diary of Anne Frank. And this is the iconic photo I remember for years and years and years Mm -hmm. being on that book. And I've always been struck by, you know, in this photo, Anne's very dark around her eyes. Looks like she hasn't slept in a long time and her face is very non-expressive, and with the very dark hair yeah. and the light skin, she looks almost porcelain, almost um, like Kinda. a doll. Yeah. A little bit of a creepy doll, but a little bit like a doll. And then this is the new Anne Frank photo that I think gets on most things. Hey. And she just. She, you can see movement in her hair. She has a smile. She looks alive. She's dressed differently. And that first one that I grew up with, she looks like she's eight years old.
1: Which I honestly don't even remember. I've, I don't feel like I've ever seen that picture.
0: Oh, yeah? Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, if I get on the internet and maybe start researching it, that's the first picture that I would see. She does look very dark around her eyes. And I don't know if it's just the way that the picture was taken versus the one that we see here. But I'm, I feel like that one has, like the new one that you have, yes, her hair has more movement. She's smiling. There's light in her eyes. It doesn't look like she's got dark circles, her cheeks are more filled out, it looks like, but I wonder if it's been enhanced in any way?
0: Well, and my point is simply that if I'm a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid, I'm much more interested in learning about this second person. Right. They, they appear almost like two different people. You can see the that they're the same person because of the facial structures and whatnot, but those photographs give a totally different message. They do. And I... Don't know, but just the one thought I had when you talked about um, having Anne Frank as kind of a starting point is, man, I would be much more likely to be wanting to know the story of this more lively looking Anne Frank than the slightly scary one that I grew up with.
1: And that makes sense. And I have like, oh, okay. You know what's crazy is that so on our book, in our my perspectives, there is that picture, but it doesn't look the same as the one that you're showing me because it's in her diary, so it's not as prominent. Yeah. But I totally get that. And so the thing is, is that when we, do, when, when we do this unit as well, we try to do a gallery walk and have pictures to try and help kids understand. And there's a picture that we have for a gallery walk where she's sitting in kind of a lounge chair. It looks like during the summertime. She kind of has a slight smirk on her face, a hat. And she, yeah, she looks more of like some kid that you could relate to or like as a kid you could relate to and want to know more about because similarities in what you guys are doing.
0: Now, when we talked before about, hey, what are we trying to do with this particular episode? You really talked a lot about remembrance.
1: Remembering and honoring, yeah.
0: Remembering and honoring. And I certainly think that as personal as Anne Frank's diary was, it was clearly an attempt for her to remember things. I agree with you that likely this is all facilitating remembering getting through something. Mm Mm-hmm. And it didn't really turn out that way. And I wonder, I thinking as a father, I go, man, if I'm Otto and I lose my family in the war, because he's the only one that survives. Yes, he is. what a miracle that somebody else took the time to keep that diary and some other papers. An absolute miracle that somebody took the time to hold on to those.
1: And, well, it was Meep Guy's, I thought, right? The one that hid... Yeah. Was, yeah, she kept it. The one that helped him. Yeah, she kept it.
0: And he's able to get back to her and obtain just incredible, in its own right, that that circumstance came about. Yeah. But I wonder what, uh as a father, would I want to publish these obviously personal things and musings of my daughter? Or would I not? I'd want to maybe cherish them and keep them to myself, not to, um, I don't know overstep what she would have done in life and do something different in her death. But by the very nature that she did die, it sort of changes that equation.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that was hard because I know that from what I understood and what I've read and heard from Otto or what he's written is that originally he wasn't wanting to publish her whole diary to the world. That was not his first instantaneous thought. What he did want to do when he did find it, as far as I understood, is that he wanted to make certain copies of certain things to share with his family and his close relatives in remembrance of her and maybe in honor of the situation and the things that did happen. Just because, you know, obviously kids put some interesting things in there, and there are funny parts to Anne's diary. There are comical things, and so, you know, it, it was, I think, a cherishing moment for him to be able to read through that and remember Anne and his family and the time that they had together but then he, he did want to share that with his family. I don't think it was until, I, I think it was five to seven years after he found her diary that he actually published it to the now world. I want to
0: say it's 1952, so that'd be right at seven years.
1: Right, so it took him a while to actually publish it. And I think that as a father, he cherished those moments. But I think as a human being, being a part of the world, he thought literature is a very powerful tool in remembering and honoring the things that have happened. And those who have passed. And I think that he thought of it as a way of honoring his daughter. And, I mean, obviously we can't ask Anne how she feels about it. So it's hard to say one way or another. I mean, I think a lot of kids are like, oh, yeah, she would completely love it. She's famous. Or, you know, I have other (laughs) kids that are like, no, that was her private stuff. That should have just been kept to her and her family. But this was a super historical moment in history that she has recorded and has insight to on a different level than what you know, adults think about, you know what I mean? So I, do. I think that he wanted to publish it just to honor her memory and help others remember what happened so that we don't forget and don't repeat.
0: And religiously the Jewish faith is one hundred percent grounded in remembrance. That is an absolute tenet. Oh. They're remembering their covenant with God and they expect him to remember that covenant with them. That oh. is very powerful in that belief system. And I think we'll see that in different flavors of these Jewish people we talk about today in relation to the Holocaust. Right. I think about honoring Anne Frank and remembering her and knowing that she died just a couple months before the end of the war.
1: Oh, yeah. She's one of those
0: few people who went to Auschwitz and then was moved out. Most people, I mean, it's Grotesque, but ended up, especially kids her age, they just end up up the chimney pretty quickly. Yes, they did. She made the transport to go to Bergen-Belsen for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and conditions are as bad or worse there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Everybody thinks she most likely died of typhus, which is running wild at that yeah. time towards the end of the war. To remember her then would be almost horrific. It would be. Like she was likely scared. The last known person to see her said she looked like a skeleton, and this is about a month before she would have died. She would have had her hair shaved yep. when she got to Auschwitz. She would have been, I mean, they said she wouldn't even wear clothes because she was so sick. She would just kind of hold a blanket over her because the clothes would just fall off. She'd yes. lost so much weight. And everybody's dirty, covered in lice. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways it actually is an honor and a way to remember that we have this young girl who looks lively, who can help us remember that these people in the Holocaust are individuals.
1: Yeah, they're human beings. Help us remember that they're, you know, she. what what did Anne Frank do wrong to have this happen to her? She was 13, 14 years old, you know, she, she hasn't been alive long enough to have these horrific type things happen to her. And so we need to remember that one, she's just a child, innocent, in any of the situation, and the outcome that she received is not, it doesn't equate or it doesn't, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it just doesn't fit for what she has. And there, so,
0: it's not a cause and effect relationship.
1: No, and That's I think. That's
0: something, a valuable lesson from the Holocaust. It does not matter what you do. Generally speaking, you live or die in a very, very random manner. And there's almost nothing you can do to guarantee, there's lots you can do to guarantee you, your are dead. But there's precious little you can do to guarantee the arbitrariness of life. Yeah. But the Holocaust is so big. We're talking about so many millions of people that it is unbelievable. The reason Holocaust deniers get anybody to listen to them is because it's so overwhelming to think about six million people. And when you hear that term, six million Jews, six million Jews, you have a tendency to compartmentalize that as some big, you know, shapeless, nameless, I mean, I guess named group, and not these individual people like Anne. If nothing else, that image, whether it's the one that freaked me out as a kid or the newer one that looks better, gives face. Does something almost unimaginable and makes it so much more real. It does. So what are some of the other pieces of literature you use?
1: Uh, So, uh, one of my favorite people that I really appreciate is Elie Wiesel. I, uh, he wrote his short memoir, Night, because what, and what people don't realize, because Elie Wiesel made it through, uh, he made it through the Holocaust, right? But he got caught early on with his dad and his family. Okay, they they got caught, and I believe that he had to survive. I can't remember how many years. I think it might have been a year or so. I can't remember exactly how long it was. Um, him and his father had to survive in the hall in Auschwitz for mm-hmm. a really long time. But what people don't realize is that. Him and Anne Frank were almost the same age. Elie Weissel was 15 years old when he went through the Holocaust, and he had a completely different experience than what Anne Frank had because her family went to hiding, right? Right. Otto had thought about that. I don't really know, uh, Elie Weissel, what his father was thinking or how he decided or what what things really happened there, but, you know, Elie Weissel ended up having to go through the ghettos uh, and then into the concentration camps and had to learn how to survive that way. And... I, I find his story just fascinating for a 15-year-old to be able to comprehend certain things that are happening and the things that he was thinking in his night memoir are just kind of shocking.
0: Well, I have an actual passage from that. Oh, good. That maybe we could talk about We can. I think it fits in with what you're, you're trying to teach in your class.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's, Never shall I forget that night, mm-hmm. the first night in the camp, which has turned my life into one long night. Seven times cursed and seven times sealed, never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God Himself. That's hard to read.
1: It is. It's a rough passage. I mean, it's, I, it, I, at a 15 years old, just sitting there thinking that, I mean, there were, in that moment when he's describing that scene, because that's actually one of the sections that we, we use in our unit, is that there's a small excerpt. And that's one of the sections that we use because that's when he first arrives at Auschwitz. And his experience just at 15 years old, the rest of the thought process going through his mind because they were getting marched in. He had just been separated from his mom and his little sister. And he even makes reference before that, he goes, I didn't realize that this was going to be the last time I ever saw my mom and my sister. And so he's grappling with that. You know, like, trying to understand what's happening. He knows that something bad's happening. His dad's trying to reassure him. There was actually another person, I can't, he doesn't know who it was, that actually saved his and his dad's life. That, you know, he told Eli and his father to lie about their ages to keep them in the concentration camp. As they're walking, he was walking towards flames, and he anticipated that the Nazis were going to walk them right into those flames and just burn them alive as they were, just heaps of bodies, and right at the last minute, they turned to head to the barracks, and so he hit that point where he just had that wave of relief, like, thank thank you, I'm still alive, but also seeing what is becoming, and like, what is his future, you know, the the burning pile, but he had grappled with, how could God allow this to happen, and his father in that moment had said, there is no God here, and they hit that point where it was like, they're having, he's questioning Everything about his life and what he knows, and questioning his religion right in this moment, and wondering like, why should I even be alive? Like he contemplated actually just, you know what? I'm just going to go throw myself into this barbed wire fence. I'm just going to burn myself. I'm just going to end it now because I already know. Because he's grappling with so many things just in this moment. Right.
0: And I know as when I'm teaching kids speech and debate, I talk about his speech, and I had to look it up. I was like, where did he give that? So it was oh, when yeah. they opened the American Holocaust Museum. Yeah. Okay. So the speech he gave there, the perils of indifference, mm-hmm. and he talks a lot about it's okay to feel hated mm-hmm. because there's still something there. But what's terrible is to feel, you know, ignored, to feel indifferent. Right. And in that moment, you were just talking about that stems from this questioning your faith in God. That that's really what bothered him. Is in the camps he felt as though. God was indifferent to their plight, that He had forgotten them, right which comes right back around to that whole idea of remembrance.
1: remembering and honoring like the covenant that they made, like yeah. they expect God to remember, so they remember. And right? some
0: of the power that him, and' I've, you know I've read some of Victor Frank and some other people too, Holocaust survivors find a lot of power in their memories, however horrible they are mm-hmm. because as long as you can remember what happened to you or your brother or the person next to you or the thousands of people you saw, then they're not forgotten. If even one person remembers, then they are not forgotten. It's right. not an issue of indifference.
1: Right. And Eli Weissel talks about, like, uh, he, in his acceptance speech, he makes the comment that to forget, I mean, I and I'm not going to quote it right, I have to find the quote, but basically to forget is to be an accomplice to the crime. Yes. You know, to, to forget is just going to be just the same as condemning yes. all the people that died within you know within the Holocaust. I, if I can find the exact quote, I will do that. And I can't quite find <laughs> it because
0: I. Well, that's. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I we read that speech this morning, so I know what you mean. I can't quote it precisely either. So but look it. it up. The uh, the Google can help you find that, and it's amazing. Have you? Or do you? I mean, I don't know if you teach it, because it didn't come up when we were talking about it. But have you read this poem, The Butterfly?
1: I have not read the poem, The Butterfly. Would you like to read it
0: out loud? Oh, hey, this is outstanding. So this is, I'll let you read it first, and then I'll tell you the back story. Okay.
1: Read it out loud. Mm-hmm. The Butterfly. The last, the very last, so richly, brightly, dazzlingly yellow. Perhaps if the sun's tears would sing against a white stone. Such such a yellow is carried lightly way up high. It went away, I'm sure, because it wished to kiss the world goodbye. For seven weeks I've lived in here, penned up inside this ghetto, but I have found my people here. The dandelions call to me and the white chestnut candles in the court, only I never saw another butterfly. That butterfly was the last one. Butterflies don't live in here, in the ghetto.
0: So that piece of poetry, written by Pavel Fryden, who ended up dying in Auschwitz, and was a collection of poetry, drawings, other writings, Mm -hmm. that was uh, found in, and these are common throughout all of the ghettos. People tried to deal with what they were seeing and experiencing in certain ways. But he writes this long before he gets to Auschwitz.
1: Because he was in the, they transferred the him to the ghettos first, like the little communities that they chose to put him in, saying like, we're getting you a new place and a new home, right? Okay.
0: And already to feel like butterflies don't come here. Good things don't come here. Happiness doesn't come here. And the line where he talks about, I found my people here. This sense of community from joint suffering, that is a universal thing. Oh, yeah. And when you talk of Holocaust survivors, they clearly have a bond that's unimaginable Mm -hmm. to most anybody else. But we see this in military personnel that serve together, Mm -hmm. hostage situations, people that are taken hostage, um, abused children Mm
1: -hmm.
0: within a family. They, hard times, really bring people together. Right. And I think it's... Interesting that he found his people and realized so early that the places he, I never saw another butterfly. He says that so definitively as though he were looking back on his life. And he was correct, but he had no way of knowing that at the time. Right. Anyways, I saw that poem for the first time in an old Holocaust documentary that I want to say was narrated by Orson Welles. So old black and white from the... 70s or something. And Ed has always stuck with me. One more kind of literary way that the Holocaust has come to me and meant something in my life. It helps me to remember that I remember that.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that poetry in times can be more powerful than just reading diaries or memoirs in some ways, because you're making connections to a lot of other things. Like, you know, as far as I remember, I thought butterflies were a sign of it's symbolic for something good yeah you know yeah. something rebirth yeah things of that nature and, that. and i mean i think that you know my boyfriend's family thinks that butterflies when they come and visit you um are from family that have passed on from heaven mm-hmm. coming to visit you like sending a sign that hey we're here we're with you right and so and that that can be seen as a good thing and so you know even though in this situation like with poetry We have to read into it a lot more and try and understand it a lot more. And I like that fact about poetry, and I think that it can definitely touch a little bit more. But it is nice. I I like that you talk about, like, he found his people in this moment, even though nothing good is happening here. That's very similar to the pandemic that we're in, in that way where we can say, oh, nothing good is happening right now in this pandemic for the most part. Like, we feel isolated, but I found my people. I found new, strong connections with my family. And I think that is something that helps you know, when we read things from the Holocaust and from their experiences, it can help us relate and yeah. understand more. But, I mean, obviously we're never going to know their experience, never know what they went through. But it at least helps us, in a way, relate and connect and say, okay, I have some small part of understanding what you're talking about. Because right now I feel like nothing good is happening in the quarantine and nothing good is happening in the <laughs> pandemic. But, you know, I have a stronger connection with my kids. I have a stronger connection with my, my family. I, you know, I've kind of realized, like, what's more important to me? It, you, I, I, like, I love my job, don't get me wrong, but, man, I realized I spent a lot of time doing it and not enough time with my family, and so that, that is one way that I do like the literature and, and talking about the Holocaust is because in little ways there are things that we can think of, and, you know, I know that if my boyfriend read this po- poem... He would connect with the whole butterfly thing and be like, "That you know, I get that." Yeah. I would. Well, I have a spare time.
0: copy. You're welcome to take it. Oh,
1: good. He'd love <laughs> it. He'd be so appreciative.
0: Can we do a, another, another little reading? Yes,
1: let's do
0: that. So this one's by Viktor Frankl. I looked through.
1: Oh, I've heard of him too. Yes.
0: Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. And that whole book is almost just paragraph after paragraph that you could stop and analyze. Interesting because he's a psychiatrist, uh-huh. so he's looking. At his experience as a Holocaust survivor, Mm -hmm. in human terms and psychological terms, I mean, he gets deep with some things, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was this one. I shall never forget, and it stuck out because we start with this, what are we not going to forget? What do we value so much that we're going to hold on to and remember? I shall never forget how I was roused one night by the groans of a fellow prisoner who threw himself about in his sleep, obviously having a horrible nightmare. Since I had always been especially sorry for people who suffered from fearful dreams or deliria, I wanted to wake the poor man. Suddenly I drew back the hand, which was ready to shake him, frightened at the thing I was about to do. At that moment, I became intensely conscious of the fact that no dream, no matter how horrible, could be as bad as the reality of the camp which surrounded us, and to which I was about recall
1: oh wow and that's powerful that is I'm gonna have to borrow that (laughs) from you because I need to take that to my kids because I don't think that they can connect with that sometimes but hearing these things it and you talk about the holocaust non-believers or the the uh what are the deniers the deniers the holocaust deniers like this is something that you sit here and you think this is so unbelievable like you could be having a nightmare in your sleep, and you want to be woke up from it because most people do. But in that moment, he decided not to wake him up, just because he's like,
0: whatever, "Whatever that nightmare whatever is,
1: whatever that nightmare is, is, guaranteed to be better than where we're at." And that's just that is so heartbreaking to even hear and to even think about because you know, I just my my three year old sleeps next to me when she has a nightmare, yeah. and I can hear it. I wake her up and I let her know that it's okay, and I just sit there and think to simply not wake somebody up, that it's a blessing to let them live that nightmare out rather than to wake them up and let them realize, oh, hey, you're still stuck on this cold floor, dying in your own vomit, poop, pee, like everybody else's, along with other, like, dead everything. That's just... It's unbelievable. It's shocking to hear. And...
0: What what happens... Like, when I, I do a little mini-unit once in a while, I, I teach U.S. history, and I'm done at the Civil War. I just do the first half of U.S. history. There's right. no holocaust. Right. But I usually teach a little mini-lesson once a year about it. Yeah. And mine focuses more on the propaganda and how people get to the level where they can treat other people this way. Because it's a process. It takes time, and it there's is. some identifiable steps. Save that for a future episode. Um, yeah. But I can tell every time I teach that many class that, you know, some people are really, they're really beat up. Some kind of make light of it, and they yeah. have no idea what they're making light of. And it annoys me, but it is what it is. And some are really, like, brought to tears, and they're tore up when we talk about some of what happened in the Holocaust. When you see some of the images, when you hear some of the stories. Right. What kind of reactions do you get from people?